This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, not a lot of love today for Target and a lot of other retailers. Uh, Target releasing earnings this morning that, shall we say, disappointed uh, the market. Let's understand why. For that, we bring in Matthew Boyle. He is U.S. Realty retail reporter excuse me, uh, for Bloomberg, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Jennifer Bartoshes, she is Senior U.S. Retail Staples and Restaurants Analyst. That is a big portfolio, Jennifer. Uh, down in Princeton, New Jersey, she's part of our Bloomberg Intelligence team. So, Jennifer, let me start with you. What's the big takeaway specifically for Target? Why are investors so, to use a technical term, grumpy? Well, in, in terms of a big takeaway, I think people weren't expecting um, you know, some of the things that got pulled forward into Q3 that appeared. And, and a big part of that was inventory um, as they were gearing up for the holiday season. And then same-store sales were slightly below what people had hoped for. And so there's a little bit of nervousness that there's um, some momentum shift that's happening with Target right now. But the company's CEO, he's like, hey, I'm not worried. I'm feeling like the consumer, nothing's changing. Unemployment is low. Wages are expanding. We have strong GDP growth. I mean, Matthew, what's going on? Are, ex- <laughs> we, are, are, I ex- are expectations just so high? It, I mean, yes. Ex- there's what investors are seeing. There's what shoppers are seeing. There's what CEOs are seeing. And Brian Cornell, it was, it was the first question we asked him right out of the gate on the, the call today. The shares were already down, you know, 10, 11 yeah. percent. And we said, Brian, you know, in August, you said this was the best consumer environment uh, you, you had seen in your 37-year career, you know, ever. Right. What's changed or has it changed? And he would not take the bait. He said, you know, things are still extraordinarily strong. Unemployment is low. Wages, wages are up. And they are betting heavily because of that. So despite Wall Street's uh, high expectations, which nobody seemed to be able to meet today. I mean, look at even Dollar General and Costco are down today. Right. The two investor darlings, the ones who can do no wrong. Well, even just they every, are down today. Is this just everybody kind of throwing it into this mar- market environment? Well, everything, was, everything had been really way up, you know, yeah. for some time. Time, especially Costco and Dollar General, because of their strong performance. Now people are seeing this. Okay, let's just throw out the baby with the bathwater here a little bit. Um, so you know, and but we'll, we will see come you know twenty four forty eight hours when people start lining up. You know, who's made the right bets on toys and electronics, for example? Yeah. Toys is going to be a huge battleground this year. Target's adding uh, square footage in five hundred stores. Even Best Buy is selling Barbies. Why is Best Buy selling Barbies? Because somebody's going to be in a Best Buy getting a mobile phone. Or or a TV, and oh, by the way, let me pick up a Barbie as that well. That would have been me, you know, if my daughter was younger. That's the kind of thing I would have done. Like, oh, look, yeah, it's there, right? And so has the world, I mean, obviously Toys R Us coming out of that market has upended uh, the toy world. Uh, Jennifer, how much else, what other ways has the world changed? I mean, you know, we talk about e-commerce all the time. We talk about the retail apocalypse. Is the retail apocalypse now uh, upon us, or is this just a blip? 
No, I think this is just a blip. I mean, there's still a big role for for brick and mortar stores in retail, um, and there's no there's no question that online sales are going to continue to grow and that e-commerce is is going to continue to get bigger and bigger every year. Um, but people still want to have some sort of experience. Um, and kind of looping back to what you're talking about with toys, you know, there's a, an element to discoverability. People want to browse and they want to see things and they want to look at it and go, ooh, you know, I want to I want to touch that and play with that. And that's the role that stores play. So so going into the holiday season, um, I think there's still opportunity for strong traffic into stores and for people to use those as a, a way to, to fill out those Christmas lists right. um, beyond things that they just want to get online. And to be fair, if I look at uh, the movers in the S&P 500 Super Composite Retailing Index, I mean, with that index is up, I think, about 12% so far this year. But Urban Outfitters is the number one gainer in the index. It's up 3.3% its sales. Um, Matt? Beat estimate. So, I mean, investors are being selective to yeah, some Best extent. Yeah, Best Buy is up as well. And, and mm-hmm. Jennifer talked about that experiential, you know, desire. Best Buy is a really good example of that. You can walk in and take a look at all the smart home devices. There's a, there's a category that people are still like, do I need this stuff? Right. How is it all going to talk together? Do I need it for grandma or do I want it for home security? That's a reason to go into a store is to get that all figured out. Right. And, and it's interesting, you know, Matt, you we're talking with us earlier this year about this idea of Best Buy specifically sort of like hugging Amazon a little yeah. bit closer, <laughs> that that was a, a, a discreet uh, strategy there. So, so Jennifer, if we look at other names that we need to either be concerned about or, or even somewhere we might see some more optimism as we continue to get numbers, where, where are you focused? Well, you know, I'm, I'm certainly looking at, in terms of the big the big box guys, I'm looking at categories within the store. Um, so yeah. everybody's fighting over toys, but apparel should have a good season this year. Um, maybe not as strong as last year, but it still should be a, a good a good season for people. Um, and, you know, as, as, as Matt talked about, anything that has to do with, like, home technology, um, voice-enabled, um, I, you know, items um, – are, are all areas that we're looking at. Well, and Jennifer, say, safe, easy not for me to say, um, safe to say that the sentiment towards retail could change the day after Thanksgiving. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's a volatile time, and, and everybody yeah. has expectations, right? So um, Black Friday started, you know, already a week ago right. uh, in, <laughs> in, in reality. It's Black and October, or so, I don't know when got, it starts now. Yeah, you've got pre-Black Friday sales, and so um, the, the whole thing is stretched out much, much over a much right. broader period of time. So there won't be maybe as many surprises because of the early releases, but we'll still see what, what comes on Friday. Matt, 30 seconds. What are you going to be watching out for on Black Friday? Black Friday, well, I'm going to be hopefully talking to some uh, market managers, regional managers for some of the big box stores to get an early read on what are, you know, what are they seeing. What they are seeing is way more important than what I am seeing. You know, they are the experts. They're in the stores. They're overseeing dozens of stores in a particular region. That's, That's going good. to be key. I always love it. That's a great reporter right there. Matt Boyle, U.S. retail reporter for Bloomberg, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Jennifer Bartoshis, senior U.S. retail staples and restaurants analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from Princeton. Thank you both. So 
We talk a lot about artificial intelligence and it just kind of being pervasive, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, uh, data and AI being increasingly used in all walks of life. Great on one hand, but data, as we know, can be great and objective and it can be not so great and biased. So let's get into that with Dr. Rebecca Parson, Chief Technology Officer at ThoughtWorks, uh, joining us on the phone from Chicago. Dr. Parsons, great to have you here on Bloomberg Radio with uh, Jason Kelly and myself. Tell me a little bit about ThoughtWorks, what you guys are doing, and then let's get into AI and biasness. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, Carol and Jason. Um, ThoughtWorks is a uh, global software consulting company. Uh, we essentially write custom software for our clients around the globe. We're in uh, 14 different countries, um, in India, China, Australia, um, both North and South America, the UK, Europe, and uh, we tend to work across uh, across domains, so we don't just focus on financial services or retail or travel. Uh, we work across a, a multitude of, uh, of clients, and we try to bring um, creative and innovative technology solutions that help companies uh, differentiate themselves from their competitors. And so let's talk about this idea of bias within some of these systems, uh, Dr. Parsons, because it's actually a topic we've explored in the pages of Bloomberg Business Week, and and it's it's a little bit scary, yeah. uh, to be honest. And I, I think one of the things that you've picked up in your research is something we've talked about, which is facial recognition to start. Uh, tell us how it uh, works its way in there. Well. When you look at any of these AI algorithms, um, they are, are are trained on the basis of a training data set. And so if there's any kind of bias in the data set, that's going to result in bias in the model. And in facial recognition, for example, uh, very often the vast majority of the faces used in the training set are white. Um, many of them are also white men. And as a result, you get lots of very fine discrimination uh, between faces of white men, but then it starts to break down when you look at women uh, and people of color in general because they don't have enough, they don't have as many samples to, to use to make those fine differentiations. And so what it results in is very often black women will get identified as, as, as white men. Yeah, not so great. Not at all. But you know what I wonder, and I'm just going to play devil's advocate a little bit, Dr. Parsons. You know, I feel like these are are continuing to be evolving technologies. We're trying to understand them. We're trying to understand the impact of them and how to make them better. Is it just a case, a matter of time, that we will have more samples, more data that is much more diverse and more representative of the world? I mean, think about it. You can't have Alexa work well in India unless you have input that makes sense in that marketplace. And I feel feel like, is it just a case of us all being a little patient here and hopefully that the inputs get smarter, better, more diverse? Well, it's certainly going to get better as we get uh, additional inputs. And there are, in fact, for voice recognition systems, uh, activities going on to try to uh, capture more voices uh, from non-English speakers as well as different countries with different accents. Uh, because, again, um, uh, the accent that an individual uses uh, also make, makes a difference. And as we, as we increase the size and diversity of the data set, yes, it is going to get better. The question is what happens while we're waiting. Mm. And when you think about an autonomous system that is making decisions 
on the basis of a limited data set that may be biased, well, what is the consequence of that decision? When it's something um, of low import, um, for example, uh, fraud detection algorithms or credit cards have been using systems like this for, for right, years, right. literally years. And, okay, so your credit card gets declined once um, when, when it shouldn't. You know, right. That's not a life or death situation. When you start thinking about these systems being used um, for medical decision making. Gets a lot more serious. The- yeah. yeah, for sure. Yes. Uh, Dr. Rebecca Parsons is Chief Technology Officer at ThoughtWorks, joining us on the phone um, from Chicago. Congratulations. Really uh, important work. No, exactly. And this is something that has to be worked out. And I wasn't trying to be flip, but I do think, you know, right, everybody who's working in data and stuff has to make those data pools a lot more diverse. And I think, unfortunately, it takes a little bit of a time to, to, to work our way through with it. Right. And, I mean, it points to some underlying biases yeah. that we have, uh, you know, across the corporate world and even uh, with the within the tech world as well. And it doesn't help to know you're so far away. That's exactly what the folks at Buffalo are saying. Hey, Elon Musk, come visit us. What's the problem? Uh, This is a fascinating story, and it's in uh, this issue, upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week that'll be out uh, later in the week. Austin Carr wrote about the Gigafactory, and no, it's not the one in Vegas or Nevada. We're talking about the one in Buffalo, Gigafactory 2. Austin Carr is technology reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Brokers studio. Um, Great story. Uh, Terminal users are reading it as well. (laughs) They're like, what? Wait, 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 what? I didn't know that they had another Gigafactory. So tell us what set the stage for us. What's going on in Buffalo? Uh, Yeah, so a couple of years ago, uh, Elon Musk made this big commitment to the state of New York and the city of Buffalo uh, to really bring Tesla's operations in solar. They made this big bet on solar a couple of years back. And the whole idea was to build this massive solar factory in in Buffalo uh, with $750 million in funds from the state of New York. Uh, in exchange for creation of jobs and about $5 billion in ongoing investments in the area over the course of a decade. Uh, but in the couple years that Elon has committed to this project, we really haven't seen that much project. In fact, they've closed off the factory to the public just until just a couple of weeks ago when they let a couple reporters from Bloomberg News inside the factory. And what did they see? Uh, well, my co-reporter Brian Eckhouse and I, uh, we got to tour the Tesla production line, uh, and it was producing what is called the solar roof, which is basically what looks like a traditional solar shingle rooftop, uh, but it has solar cells embedded inside. And they were really hyped about getting this production line started. The only issue is it was the only production line going at the factory under Tesla. Much of the factory was still empty. We felt it looked like about uh, roughly equivalent to a Walmart supercenter in terms of size and emptiness uh, of the space, like a Walmart supercenter that hadn't opened. Right. Um, and there was a lot of also unused equipment, a lot of wooden crates around the factory as well, which was quite jarring. Well, and it's jarring in part because of all the pictures and the words that we have put out ourselves and, and many other news organizations have as well about the extra capacity that they've had to put on at Tesla factories, you know, at, to, to get cars made. Obviously, this is a different product, but this is not the Elon Musk that we've come to know, the sort of hard charging, get it done, swing shift kind of uh, Slip it on the workplace. Floor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like sort of beating people to, to to get back to work. Like so. So what gives here? Why the disconnect? Yeah, one of the most jarring details of the entire story is that Elon Musk has still not visited 
this gigafactory in Buffalo, despite the fact that the state has spent $750 million on it. Um, what we've seen in the past couple of years is Elon really focused on Model 3 production, his factory in Fremont, California, or his battery uh, factory in uh, near Reno, Nevada. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we've come to know Elon working on the production line, working 120 hours per week to get Model 3 production up. In fact, sleeping, right. uh, supposedly, at the uh, factory itself. Yet, never visiting his factory in Buffalo where they're making solar. Um, so it just really it connects this, it, it creates this big disparity between what his priorities are. Is it more about the car? Is it more about battery for Tesla? And is, is solar in the backseat? And that's what a lot of our sources for the story have indicated. Well, and I want you to go back, if you can, uh, to the, the tax incentive piece, because obviously that's very much on a lot of New Yorkers' minds and a lot of Virginians' minds uh, at this point, post-HQ2 or post-HQ2. One point, you know, whatever it is, um, in you know the, this sort of dual HQ two, uh, shall we say? Because New York State shelled out a lot of uh, incentives there too. Is this a sort of New York thing? I mean, I know this happens uh, all over the place, but New York can't be psyched that this has gone this way. Uh, this is a huge trend right now, the, these sort of massive mega deals, subsidies coming from the government to lure big tech companies away from Silicon Valley to areas like upstate New York or western New York, as well as in, in, in Wisconsin, where recently they had a big tax incentive package to get Foxconn, the Ty- Taiwanese manufacturer, to come over to the state. Um, the, the big question about all these types of projects is whether they actually live up to the commitments that the companies make to the state. And so far, the state says that Tesla is at least fulfilling its job requirements. Mm. But at least based on our reporting, a lot of our sources indicated they're really doing the bare minimum to actually fulfill these financial and hiring obligations to the state. As just one example for the solar roof, their big solar product, the glass they're actually using that is not from Corning, Corning just to our cell in right. the state of New York, but they're actually shifting it over in uh, overseas uh, in from Asia. Uh, another great example from the story is that for a while they were actually shipping in their supplies for their vending machine from California rather than getting it from a local supplier, which is, again, really quite jarring. How do the locals feel about it? Um, it was inter- We've spent a lot of time in Buffalo in, in recent months, and uh, locals, I would say, have just sort of given up hope on this project. You know, there was such hype, such promise, as with any big project that Elon Musk gets his hands on. Uh, they were super excited that Tesla was coming to the, fa- uh, to the, to the Buffalo area. Um, but so far, they really haven't noticed much different. If anything, it, they feel like it hasn't uh, been the greatest neighbor when it comes to just moving into the area. Well, because as you say, and, and it's important to remember, you know, this was a classic, is a classic sort of Rust Belt type city. And so the promise of mm-hmm. literally like the ultimate startup, the ultimate mega startup, you know, coming to Buffalo, that I have to think that they're they're thinking they've seen what's happened in Detroit, sort of the revitalization there. And maybe Elon Musk uh, was going to be their savior. I don't want to spoil the story, but the, the kicker quote is just amazing. You talk to this couple that lives across the street. Um from the factory itself and says, we feel neglected. Elon could take his spaceship and be here in two minutes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. they feel, and in apparently. fact, that couple had uh, called Tesla to try to get solar panels installed on their roof. And we're told that Tesla does not service the Buffalo area. <laughs> Tesla, of course, says <laughs> that they will the soon uh, service the Buffalo area. But for now, they do not. 
and are, yeah. Are we just not giving it enough time? Like, ultimately, is the solar factory going to be very productive? I know there's been R and D going on right on the West Coast, which Elon has been involved in, right? And they've been changing kind of the model in terms of the solar panels that they want to sell. Now they're looking at solar shingles. So, is it something that will be viable and have more of an economic impact down the road? I, I think that's still to be determined. Tesla is very excited about this product, and in fairness, we should give them credit. This is a really complex product to make. No one has done it successfully uh, in the past, and I wouldn't put it past Elon Musk as someone who can pull off this type of project and and bring this type of solar product to the mainstream. Uh, But after years and years of promises in which Tesla continuously has said they'll ramp up is just around the corner. It's next quarter. It's the second half of next right. year. We've seen it. We know this movie. <laughs> we, we've heard the story we've before. And believe me, the, the people of Buffalo have heard this since uh, 2014, basically, from, yeah. from two of Elon Musk's company that have been involved in this space. Um, so they, they promised that they're going to ramp up in, this, in the first half of 2019. Um, and from what we could tell from visiting the factory, they are making progress, uh, but just not, not quickly enough. It's just a reminder, right, that these cities, as they compete to you know, lure big tech into their communities, into their cities, give them lots of tax breaks, that it doesn't always work out as everybody thinks. And, and it's just something to think about, right? Well, and you think about all the incentives that were given down to the car companies, the more traditional car companies yeah. uh, down in the Southeast. Right. There's been a lot of great Business Week reporting on that front as well. Austin Carr, tech reporter here at Bloomberg. It's a fantastic story in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week, available now on Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on a Tuesday afternoon. I'm Jason Kelly alongside Carol Masser. This is Bloomberg Radio. Can I just tell you, Paul Brennan, I love this Lady Gaga song. It's just so cool. Uh, and if I didn't like Annie Massa so much... I thought you were going to say, I love this lady, Annie Massa. And I was like, yeah, great. Well, She's I love terrific. Her too. Yeah. And if I didn't like her so much, I would have just kept Lady Gaga going. I'm just telling you. <laughs> Annie Massa is our investing reporter at Bloomberg News. Great headline on her story and a great story to back it up. The poker ace is playing a key hand in the $5 trillion ETF market. Nice to have you here. Thank you She's so in much. our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So what are you writing about? Tell us it. Tell so, everybody. I was I wrote this story about a firm that's little known, I would say, especially outside of Wall Street, that is pretty crucial in the ETF market. And the poker connection is that, um, so the firm Susquehanna trains its traders using poker and Texas Hold'em um, and a bit of game theory. So it plays a very large part in their kind of whole trading process. I mean, I have to think, and, and maybe it's just because it does evoke memories of you know, and allusions to arguably one of the best-known books about Wall Street liars poker, but I feel like this story is going to go viral at business schools, and all of a sudden (laughs) Susquehanna is going to get a whole lot of uh, incoming job applications. So what's the theory behind this type of training? Their outlook is that poker trains you to make the kinds of decisions in uncertain circumstances, probability-based decisions in uncertain circumstances that you have to make in financial markets. And their training kind of preps people to be able to make smart bets. And you're actually rewarded more, really, if, if, if you're making smart bets for the right reasons versus just like gambling and making... Um, uninformed kinds of decisions and just, you know, placing a wild bet and then succeeding. Like, 
they it's all about the types of decisions that you make. What I love too though is it's not just like a couple guys were maybe like kicking things around Monday morning saying, Hey, you know what? I had a great poker game. Let's let's like bring this to the firm. I mean, this is kind of the core of the firm, correct? The empire built on poker. That's right. It's really in their DNA. The co-founders met in college at SUNY Binghamton and they all like to play cards together. And then they they founded this firm together in the suburbs of Philadelphia and poker has always been at the root and at the root of their training program. They hire straight out of undergrad uh, most of the time and they can really shape the way that their traders think about uh, markets using poker and game theory. And so what does the emergence, the big time emergence of ETFs uh, mean for, for this firm? Because that seems to have really help them kind of expand this strategy in a way. Definitely. They are huge in ETF trading. They're one of the biggest traders of ETFs, and they trade about 7% of uh, ETF volume in the U.S. Wow. They trade 7% of the volume in the ETF? Yeah, they're huge. They're giants, and, and they're quiet giants in that market. And they stood out to me because this is a firm that was founded in 1987, and, nice timing. Yeah, and 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 they got into ETFs. The the, the two core um, businesses are their options trading, which was the founding um, kind of trading piece of the firm, and and ETFs. And back in the day when they founded this firm, it was an options trading firm, but they were able to see very early on when ETFs were really just so niche, yeah, and so small, and nobody really knew how big they would become. They saw an in there and they survived in their current form from those early days to today as an independent proprietary trader. I love this stat. Each day it handles about a billion dollars in creations and redemptions. Um, So this is the process of bringing new shares of an ETF to market or trading them in for the underlying securities. I mean, that's a lot of volume. Yeah. It's like, and that's part of the reason that they're so crucial to the market. That creation and redemption aspect to ETFs is part of what keeps them cheap and accessible to trade. So Susquehanna and then a couple of other firms that are big in the ETF market um, are performing this function, this creation and redemption function. And that's part of the, um, piece that's so critical to ETF liquidity and something that I wanted to highlight because especially beyond Wall Street, people, retail investors might not be as familiar with how who those firms are that do it and why it's so important. 100 million. Did you see this? 100 million yeah. ETF shares per day. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, notably, and this is a hat tip to you, you know, Susquehanna wouldn't talk to you directly uh, for this story. So you were left to your own devices to interview formers and, and rely on things that they had told other people. It's an incredibly well-told uh, story. It's a centerpiece of the current issue of Bloomberg Markets, which, by the way, it's a really strong issue of Bloomberg Markets. And we were talking uh, yesterday with mm-hmm. Peggy Collins about yeah. her cover story here. Annie Massa, investing reporter at Bloomberg. The story is the poker race is playing a key hand in the $5 trillion ETF market. Not surprisingly, one of the best read stories on the Bloomberg today. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Drive. 
is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us, Margie Patel. She's Managing Director, Senior Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management. Joining us uh, once again from Boston. Margie, good to have you here in a day when, once again, we're seeing a bunch of selling on the equity side of things. And we're now showing those major equity averages pretty much either flat for the year again or actually down. The Dow's Dow now down about uh, one full percentage point uh, in 2018. Of course, there's been a lot of up and down to get to this uh, process. When you look at the markets and you look at the environment, I don't know, does it remind you of another era? Well, it really reminds me very much in uh, 07 when we had the market sort of fade for no reason in the summertime, and then it sprung back in the fall. And this is the same thing as, yes, there are all these sort of negatives, Fed raising rates, growth decelerating. But it just seems that suddenly uh, there's a signal and things have caved. And uh, so it reminds me mostly of of that period right before the financial crisis. Well, that kind of freaks me out. (laughs) Uh, We can't just drop it there. Are you saying that we're headed for some kind of crisis or some protracted uh, pullback in the market environment, the equity market environment? Well, it seems to me that even though the Fed has made these very mild, gradual increases, in fact, they have had a real negative impact on certain sectors of the economy, of housing, autos, and for levered players pretty much around the world. And I think the market is signaling that the rate increases were too fast, even though rates are only a little over 3% in the intermediate area. I think it says the Fed has really gotten ahead of itself. And so we are starting to hear calls, and granted, uh, it's from the most dovish, uh, some of the most dovish corners of the Fed world, uh, including Neil Kashkari, that need to slow down here. And as one of our colleagues pointed out earlier in a conversation, we are uh, set to hear uh, from both Jay Powell and uh, Rich Clarida next week. Do you think they have the evidence at this point to to meaningfully uh, slow the pace, as they say? I think they should, if they look at the history books and traditional economic cycles, which they've been doing, there's no reason to slow down the rate of increases because the economy's growing and employment's low, inflation is well behaved. But looking at the financial markets and these little cracks in the real world economic activity says that they should take a different course that coming from zero interest rates, maybe it isn't as easy as they thought it would be. You know, as we started to talk about looking beyond the Fed, you know, we've had some specific sectors that have been hurt, uh, especially badly, it feels like over the last uh, few days, certainly the last week, retail really dragging the market down pretty meaningfully uh, today. What does that tell you about the health or of the consumer or the health of some of these uh, retailers? Well, I think that the consumer is in pretty good shape, but what the numbers seem to be indicating is the growth is going to slow down from the 3 percentage level to something lower, maybe around 2%. And uh, really, we couldn't expect consumers to be spending at a rate that was so far ahead of their income growth. So again, it's natural to slow down, but it's just another straw on the camel's back, signs of deceleration in the economy. Hey, just one last question, Margie. I'm just curious on these pullbacks. Have you been upping your equity exposure? Or uh, I did see a story on the Bloomberg earlier. I can't remember if it was Goldman or or, or some other. I think it was Goldman saying, you know, you should be thinking about raising, I think, your cash Cash, position, uh, which to me says uh, they're a little bit more concerned about the outlook. How about you? Just got about 30 seconds left. 
Uh, I have reduced my equity exposure from the higher end of the range to the lower end of the range in my aggressive balance fund. And I've actually raised a lot of cash because it looks like even high yield looks like it wants to go down in price up in yield. So I've taken cash on the sidelines, reduced my equities. Got it. Margie Patel, thank you so much. Managing Director, Senior Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.